This episode of Ragcast Outdoors is brought to you by PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Fish on! Hey, Radcast is on! Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. Here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Well, hello and welcome, everybody. We are on the road uh, traveling. I've taken the mobile unit. I'm super excited. I am super excited today. We've been uh, trying to pin down our guest for a little while, but he's here. It's pretty exciting. I've been following this uh, gentleman for a little while. He is the host of Hunt Talk Radio, Elk Talk Radio. Those are both podcasts. And then Fresh Tracks TV hunting show online. Welcome to the show, Randy Newberg. Uh, Thank you, David. Thank you, Patrick. You know, the funny part is we live, what, four or five hours apart from each other, and we end up having to catch up to do a podcast in Bend, Oregon, of in all places. Bend, Oregon. I, I've been, <laughs> you know, we're at ev- almost every same show all year long. Yeah. I'm like, hey, Randy, hey, Randy. I know. So. I, I'm sorry, guys. You you guys have been so patient and and fortunately persistent uh, of trying to track me down. So I, that, it, this is all on me for how long it's taken. So So, persistence is key in anything you do in life. You know, it's kind of like hunting, just like a lot of things. You know, if you give up easy, you're not going to be a good elk hunter. That's true. So just for the viewers that may not know, you know, who Randy Newberg is, how'd you get started in in the outdoors? Oh, man. Uh, I got started in the outdoors when I was about three. I uh, grew up in a little logging town where everybody, you know, like a lot of small towns, we all hunted, we all fished, trapped, everything like that. So it's kind of born into the outdoors. Uh, but as far as these media platforms, I started in 2008. I uh, did a TV show called On Your Own Adventures. It was on Outdoor Channel. Uh, and then the show switched over to uh, Fresh Tracks with Randy Newberg, and it was on Sportsman Channel for quite a while. And I kind of tired of the TV gig, so I went to YouTube uh, and Amazon Prime, and then we have our own proprietary subscription platform. So started doing all that because I just, I want to do it my way. I don't want a TV network to tell me, oh, you got to do 22 minutes and leave this commercial cut in there and that commercial cut. And then like you, I, I enjoy podcasts because you can have a longer discussion with somebody and get into more depth than a podcast, and you can cover a lot of issues. And I think my audience, I, I've discovered anyhow, they like hearing these longer discussions. And so, and since I don't know how to use Instagram or Facebook, uh, I have to have someone do that for me. That's why I hire younger crew members. Uh, <laughs> Randy got to see me struggle here for a little bit, Patrick, of uh, getting everything set up and ready to go. Patrick, if I didn't know better, I would think that David was a recent college graduate from a technology class because he was wiring all this stuff together and i was just lost i said i'd help you but i'd screw it up for you so but anyhow that's a little bit about me i live in bozeman montana and i'm the luckiest guy on the planet i wake up every day trying to prove that to the world well we grew up similar of uh you know out the back door grabbed a bb gun or a 22 or a stick or a rocker (laughs) and there was no youtube instagram facebook there i didn't even have a phone randy me either. I, I'm embarrassed to tell people when I finally got a cell phone. It was 2012. I beat you. Okay. Just so you know. <laughs> the partners at the CPA firm, I came back from a New Mexico elk hunt because I'm a tax accountant in my other life. Did that for 35 years. And uh, I did it because you get to hunt a lot, right? After April 15th, you can fish and hunt. So I came back from New Mexico on an elk hunt, and there's a box on my phone that says, you're going to start using this, or a a box with a phone on top of my desk saying, you're going to start using this. And uh, I'm like, why? I go hunting to get away from this stuff. (laughs) So I, uh, I succumbed. So now I have a phone. Yeah, I remember the flip-flown days of sharing uh, trophy photos on that little inch-by-inch screen. Look at this huge deer I just got. It was like, yeah, okay, yeah, looks great. Whatever, yeah. Did you have any mentors growing up? Yeah, I did. Uh, I feel really lucky that when I grew up, you know, like probably many people listening in my community, there were all kinds of people who hunted. Uh, my dad hunted. All my, my mom's got six brothers. They all hunted. My grandfather's all hunted. 
uh, a lot of aunts and sisters and cousins who are women, they all hunted. Uh, I had a sixth grade teacher who taught hunter education. Uh, he was one of my mentors, Paul Reese. Uh, and then we had the little hardware store owner, right? You are in a little town if you don't have a hardware store. Uh, Owen Gordon, uh, he also taught the hunter ed class. And he was kind of the shooting mentor of everybody in town. He's a World War II vet, uh, really dialed in. Always had the nicest and finest of everything. You know, he's probably the only guy in town who didn't have a 30-30 lever action. Uh, you know, he had one of those crazy bolt-action rifles, you know, uh, which in northern Minnesota where I grew up, that was a rare commodity. Uh, but I, I was blessed to have a lot of people who influenced me along that path. And then when I moved to Montana, I lucked out. I, I uh, got really involved in conservation and got to meet some really, really uh, first-class people Uh Jim Posowitz, who's now passed, he's written many, many books about conservation. Charlie Decker, one of the founders of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, uh, he was on our Fish and Wildlife Commission, and okay. he and I would butt heads all the time, and we, we were both bullheaded. You know, he's a logger, I come from a logging family, and so neither one of us were going to take the other's answer. Uh, and little did I know that, you know, over the course of the next 30 years, Charlie and I had become such close friends. So. I've just had the benefit of a lot of really cool people that helped me along the way. I know Patrick's, we've discussed it on the podcast several times. He's got some great mentors in the hunting and fishing, you know, uncles and neighbors. And we've even had Danny Curtle on world line class record holder. And it's, it's Patrick uncle. And I got the pleasure to fish with him. Right. But those mentors are, are important. The next question I've got for you is conservation. Yep. Specifically, you know, the tagline, pass it on. What, what does yeah. that truly mean? Yeah, well, it means a lot to me because when I grew up, my parents divorced when I was 11 and my dad moved away for work for a while. So just about the time I was gonna get ready to be a hunter at age 12, the most normal hunting mentor you would have to get you out there was my dad. And so things were disrupted there for a while, but I lucked out and I had public land right, I mean, go down to our trailer house, grab, like you are saying, grab my 22 or whatever, and in a half mile walk, I'm on public land. And I was really, really lucky for, for that. And then my dad moved back and we hunted a lot. Uh, and a lot of other people just made sure I got to hunt because they knew how much I loved to hunt and fish. And everybody was doing that, not for their own self-interest, but for the, the interest of somebody they saw coming up. And I look at all of the great conservation efforts, all the access projects, all the great organizations that we have today. People didn't do that to say, oh, this is all about me. They did it because the next generation and the next generation. And hunting has always been a generational legacy uh, activity. And for me, when you say pass it on, I take that seriously. That's, that's just a big part about what I do and what I volunteer for and I'm blessed to have these platforms and I think with those platforms comes the responsibility to be a leader and, and try to volunteer and, and do more for that next generation because so many people did so much for me. And that's I mean intrinsically why Spider is an affiliate partner with Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation is because as a young kid it, it was either you know, Saturday mornings with somebody's hunting show on Outdoor Network, right? Yep. I, don't, I don't, Jim Shockey's hunting adventures or yours, or there's a couple others, but I couldn't wait for, you know, all the other kids are reading their, their Marvel <laughs> cartoon books. And I was watching, and I could not stand turkey hunting on TV. I was uh -huh. like, can't we have some elk hunting on this, please? Yeah. But I waited for Bugle every quarter to get that magazine. And I poured over those pages, you know, front to back, just trying to, because that's what I from yeah. 12 years old I wanted to kill elk yeah. and so we've partnered with them and their mission statement and uh, this isn't this isn't a podcast about them but, no, but there's a reason why I've been so excited to be an affiliate partner and, and to grow their mission statement and it comes down to kind of three simple things one is they put their money where their mouth is yeah. that organization takes all that money funds some conservation project somewhere that secures habitat for an elk, which secures it for snakes, birds, squirrels, deer, you name it. Yep. And then that creates an avenue and an opportunity for 
my three young boys to go kill elk and that's yeah i'm kind of taking that traditional role as the father is you know making sure my boys are introduced and and brought up and patrick does the same thing with his kids fishing all the time yeah well you guys live in a great place for that you know when i do my seminars everyone says should i move to idaho montana or wyoming i always send them your way (laughs) <laughs> well, you know what we do? We say Wyoming's full and it doesn't exist. You want to go to Colorado. There's really, there, that's got the most elk. That's where you want to be is Colorado. Uh, yeah, I was doing the seminar yesterday and someone asked me the question, hey, you're a tax accountant, right? Yeah. Which state has the, the best tax climate if I was going to move for hunting? Well, guess what state I said? Don't say ours, please. I said Wyoming doesn't have a state income tax. Yeah, it's true, but but Randy, <laughs> we don't need any more people. It's full, and the wind will blow you away. Go to Colorado. Uh, you'll be happy. Yeah, well, the one guy said, well, which place would my wife like the best? I said, I'm sure Idaho. Montana, <laughs> it is cold. We got grizzly bears everywhere. And you don't want to move to Montana. Your wife will never like that. You'll be divorced in a year. I think people are probably seeing through my my ulterior motives (laughs) but so getting into the hunting aspect a little bit and those western states you talked about um just speak a little bit foot hunting versus horseback hunting versus llama hunting and and why you do what you do yeah well we got to bump into each other again i mean we do at all the trade shows right at the total archery challenges but you know the llama yeah you and i got to bump into each other at bo Beatty's wilderness ridge trail llamas last fall uh, I can't speak to horse hunting really. I've only been twice on a on a hunt on horseback, uh, but I can really talk to llamas and and how they work for me in the backcountry. And I, I think a lot of people, if you grew up like I did, you know, I didn't grow up on a ranch or around horses, so I view horses as like an automobile that doesn't have a steering device or a throttle mechanism. Uh, whereas llamas, you're not on the back of them, so. And they're so mild and they just purr, you know, as you're hiking in there. And, you know, I drive a desk for a living, so I need the exercise anyhow to walk in there. Uh, But when you got an elk on the ground, it is really nice to have a llama that can carry 100, 110 pounds. And, uh, you know, bring three or four of them and all of a sudden you're camping the elk is back at the trailhead. So I... I own five horses and I didn't grow up on a ranch but I wanted to be an elk hunter and I Uh got a job with an outfitter and learned horses inside and out but I've been using llamas lately because Uh the dark side I've gone to the dark side and there's some reasons (laughs) why Um, I you know in my 30s shoot a mule deer 10 miles back in you load it in the backpack, you hike out. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm pushing the, the 40 number, and I can't put a whole mule deer in a backpack <laughs> and hike out in a day. I'm, I don't need to prove to anybody that I can because yeah. I've done it. Yeah. It's really easy to put two llamas on a string and go walking in the woods. And yeah. when, when that mule deer's laying there, you put it on the llamas and you go walking out. And I got a smile on my face the whole time. Yeah. And those horses, while there's a time and place, and I, I will have horses, but I think I'm going to thin my horse herd. To make room for a couple llamas because yeah. they don't have the food knowledge tack trailer equipment requirements that horses do and yeah. there's there's no faster way to make a hunt than horseback yeah you get to ride right in where, where people can't even hike right you shoot something you load it up you ride right back out but you get stepped on you get kicked you get <laughs> in a horse wreck and i've been in more than my fair share uh. it, it it ruins a hunt way faster yeah i always worry about that the couple times i've been on horseback hunts like i did one in british columbia we're on horseback for 10 days long long miles long days thank god they had good horses i could see the wrangler looking at me like if this guy makes it out of here without an injury this is going to be a miracle Uh, (laughs) but one of the tactics that we use when we're planning our hunts with llamas is you know how much water a horse requires in warm weather Five gallons yeah. a day, twice a day. Yeah. A llama's not anywhere near that. So A gallon every other day, yeah. even hot weather. And uh, so we look at the map and we say, all right, <clears throat> where are the places where there's enough water for llamas but not enough for horses? And those are the basins that you find me in. And that's... I, I let you horse guys have all those well-watered basins, and I'll take me and my llamas over someplace where there's not quite enough water for the horses. Furthermore, you can take a llama 
in places you would never take a horse. I'll take them down a, a scree deer trail that I can barely walk on, and the llamas are kind of pushing me like, come on, get yeah. out of the way, let's go. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I don't know. I, it's, you know, I'm 58, and it has extended my backcountry elk hunting career by at least 10 years, I'm sure. So, well, that's, that's why I wanted to pick your brain. And, you know, I've done all three and I have my preferences and still to this day in the right spot, three miles from the trailhead, this or that, I might take my horses instead of the llamas. Yeah. Especially if there's plenty of water and grass for them and there's going to be other horse guys. It just makes sense to be much quicker traveling, but yeah. Anyone who thinks they're going to win a foot race with a horse has never tried it, (laughs) especially going uphill with a load on your back. Yeah. (laughs) Um, just just want to know what would be your advice to somebody just starting getting into big game hunting all around what what rifle caliber would you steer them towards there's literally dozens to choose from but if they wanted to pick a good standby all around they're going to buy their first rifle what would you suggest they pick as a caliber man that's that if no matter what answer you give there's going to be 10 people who have uh, opposition, uh, opposite, to what, yep. whatever you say, but and I preface it by saying I have just about every cartridge, a rifle of just about every cartridge you can think of. So for me, it's not because this is what I own, and so I have to use that. I, but I would first say, is it elk hunting or is it are you mostly a deer hunter? Are you mostly a whatever? Uh, you'd really be hard pressed to to beat something like. A 270, a 7mm, a 308, or a 30-06. And people are going to be like, that's so boring, Randy. Okay. But we're, we're, I asked you about one rifle, not, yeah. hey, I'm going to get an elk rifle, a deer rifle, and a coyote right. rifle. So, one guy's going to go buy one rifle. Right. So the rifle that I end up using the most is my 308. And I shoot the same bullet. I have five of them. And two of them really prefer Acubons, and three of them really prefer Partitions. And... You know, I get a lot of grief. I can't believe you hunt elk with a 308. Uh, Randy, I use an 06, and yeah, it works just they're, fine. They're almost identical. You know, I don't have to close. shoot 900 yards. I'm a bow hunter, so yeah. when I do resort to going to the rifle, yeah, we're then, shooting them at 250, 300 yards. Right, and uh, that's the other part is I people will ask me things about really long-distance shooting, and I have a lot of friends who are really good at it, but I've learned from them a lot of shooting skills but i've also learned from them that you know the one guy kurt he's a, the the best marksman i know and he said i think he told me he's never shot an elk over 340 yards or something like that he said there's just no need to and i'm not going to do that on a live animal so he, he's kind of my one of my shooting mentors uh but if i was gonna do it i'd get a 308 30-06 7mm and you know it's any of them would be just fantastic you you, anything on the north american continent you're going to be okay yep and i'd say for for rifle hunting past four or five hundred yards the real world takes effect and limbs and sticks and winds and yeah you can be you can be great marksman at 1200 yards on steel on a bench where you dope in the wind on on a in a dynamic situation with moving critters and archery is the same thing much after 40 50 yards the real world comes into play and yeah. while, while you might be able to shoot three inch groups at 90 yards with broadheads yeah this is a live animal and i've found that that two to three hundred yards with my rifle and 20 to 30 yards with my bow stuff flops over yep no i'm i'm the same way i uh i took the 50 yard pin off my bow i just i i when i release the trigger whether it's on my archery release or my my rifle I want to have that 99 point whatever percent comfort that something's going. And as I've gotten older and my my eyes aren't as good as I'd like to think they are, uh, I was noticing that my groups at 50 yards weren't in that two-inch group that I want. And so I just, I don't do that anymore. Remove the temptation. Yeah. So... Uh, I can get why some people do it because, you know, they're, they're really good at it. I, I just have to admit, I'm not that good at it. So here's, you know, let me find 20 yards. Let me find 25 yards. And the reason I do archery is the challenge of archery hunting for me is like when you're a kid and you're trying to sneak up on something. That's what my mind still goes to that when I'm archery hunting. It's about how close can I get? Not 
back up 10 yards so I can make my personal best, you know, as far as distance. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not a long-range guy, of, whether it's bow or rifle. I'm a huge supporter of practicing double the hunting distance. There right? you go. And I, I like think that, that that is the best rule of thumb because if you can be lethal at 600 yards, that 300 yards feels like a chip shot. If you can yeah. be lethal at 50, 60 yards with your bow, 25, 30 is like, it's a gimme. Right? Yeah. So yeah, I, I have a seventy-five yard range in my backyard, and I on my slider I have a little notch of okay, I know this is seventy-five yards, but obviously I'd never shoot that far. But when you're out shooting that far in practice, all of a sudden you get that you know thirty-yard shot. It's like oh, this it should be pretty easy. And so. I, that's where I get all my elk is at that distance. So a couple tips of somebody starting to prepare for their first big game western style hunt what are a few things that yeah. you would say people need to be aware of when they've drawn that coveted deer tag elk tag and they're coming from any state to another state yeah probably one that i think most people overlook is they're always thinking about okay i got to be in better shape so they're down at the gym and they're working out and that's all great but they get out here they've not been working out with a pack they've not been side hilling uphilling downhilling stepping over deadfall climbing under limbs and their boots and their feet are not broken for mountain hunting. And we all know if your wheels go out, your hunt is over for a few days. Uh, so I'd say, the, this, this probably sounds weird, but most of the people who report back to me if I've helped them on a hunt, it's like, man, I wish I would have got my feet in better shape. And that's why I, you know, starting in April, I start working out with a pack just in normal hiking conditions because yeah, it's good on the legs, it's good on the cardio, but I start building up those calluses again on the sides of my feet, on the balls of my feet, on the heels, on, on all the places where those pressure points in hunting season when now you've got more weight on your back and you have to go 10 miles every day because that's what the elk are doing. I don't want to be laid up at camp with feet that aren't working. So that, that's probably the first thing I tell people after that, you know, be in as good a shape as you can. I'm, I'm not a gym rat. I drive a desk for a living. I still manage to kill a few out now and then. Uh, and then mostly just, just have fun and learn how to... There, there's always that fine line of pushing yourself versus getting yourself out there in trouble, right? Know, know what your limits are, but don't be afraid to occasionally, you know, get yourself out there a little further than, you know, just the safety of every little thing. That's half the reason we go, and we are a rubber band, and the more you stretch and flex those muscles, you know, the the further you get comfortable. And some guys are not comfortable hiking in the dark, right? No, 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 I've yeah. done an all-nighter packing elk out in the middle yep. of the night. Just yeah. make sure you got two headlights, and life is good. <laughs> Why? Because I lose one, and usually the other one's dead, so I sometimes still don't have any light. But, yeah. you know, that old <laughs> adage, one is none and two is one. Right. So I, I think there's a lot of things that translate if they are coming from whitetail country. You know, just know that we're not going to have Western hunts where you're sitting in a tree stand. That's very seldom the case. You're going to be going in in the dark. You're going to be navigating long distances. You know, probably for most of them, hydration is something that they overlook, and all of a sudden their body is just shutting down on them. Uh, They're getting altitude sickness. They're getting a whole complication of things. And uh, come out a couple days early, acclimate, and... uh, don't don't get off the airplane in Cody, Wyoming, and then start, you know, hoofing it up the hill that day. Trying to beat the horses. Yeah, you're 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 just headed off the cliff. You're you're not gonna make it work. So, uh, a lot of this, I know, people are gonna be like, well, that's just common sense. Well, sometimes that's pretty uncommon sense with some people. So you'd be shocked how how often you know common sense is uncommon. I I had a spring bear hunt. Years ago, we were hunting on either side of a pretty big river, really steep, Snake River country steep. Oh, that is steep. Right? And some two hikers hiked up, and they uh, crossed about four creeks that were knee-deep. Well, there's three, four, five feet of snowpack, and it's getting warm, and those creeks swelled to chest <laughs> deep. And I remember, long story short, they put their two backpacks on a piece of paracord with a pulley and tried to zip them across the, the river while the rope broke and the packs went tumbling down the Ooh, river. Man. They were only about three miles from the trailhead. One guy was on one side, one guy on the other, and he comes up to us all frantic, my buddy, my buddy. I'm like, okay, well, where is he? What's, you know, I thought yeah. we had like a... 
life-threatening a life-threatening you know bone shattering and he's like he's stuck on the other side of the river i'm like grab the next horse guy and have him get and before we even turned around and went up there some guys had been coming out shed hunting and gave him a ride on a pack horse across the <laughs> creek and he come sauntering in all wet so uh, there's things to be uh, thought about and yeah. you know to stay safe be, so be, be safe but also be be, be willing to push yourself a little bit. I think most people find that their mental limit is right around 40% of their actual capability. Yeah. Yep. And I'm not talking go jump off a cliff and see if you can land 300 <laughs> feet. But, but on our doll sheep hunt, I saw this ram coming from about 800 yards away, and we were standing on the trail. And I looked at the cameraman and my dad, and I said, he's either going to at that Y go away from us or towards us we sat down we set up the camera we've got a footage of a ram at three yards but i had to grab my dad and pull him over a a little bit of a shelf cliff and we're sitting on about a three foot wide ten foot long ledge and below us is nothing right and he's like i'm not going down there i'm like yeah you are come here just grabbed his shoulders and set him down so as you look down the road in in the hunting community hunting industry what is one of the biggest threats you see coming to our way of life yeah I, I think we see them regularly. I mean, we're in Oregon right now, right? Uh, they've lost hunting lions with hounds because of ballot initiatives. Your neighbor to the south, Colorado, got a wolf reintroduction. With no hunting recourse. Right. Without a management plan that allows for management. Right? They, they say it's a management plan, but if you're not going to manage them, or is it a management plan? They're now a sacred cow. Yeah. Uh, Wyoming just or uh, Washington just lost their spring bear season. So what we're seeing is out-of-state interest with a lot of money, a lot of attorneys, a lot of PR and media skill come in and they say, where's a weak link in this state that traditionally has a great outdoor heritage? Let's go to that weak link and let's put all of our resources on it and let's hammer them. And so the last line of defense in these states becomes these state-based groups, like here in Oregon, Oregon Hunters Association. Oregon Trappers Association. Yep, yep. All of those kind of things. And that I see that threat as there's a little bit of the, oh, that could never happen in my state of Montana or your state of Wyoming. Or Yeah, it's going to be later before that kind of stuff probably would happen. It's already happened with grizzly bears it, in my state, right? Randy. Yep, I know. And it happens with wolves and everything else. And... I look at how much energy we spend bickering among ourselves. You know, like, oh, lighted knocks or, you know. Six, five creed more. Yeah. If, if our members took the amount of time and energy, even a fraction of that, that they spend arguing and fighting and calling each other names, and they volunteered some of that towards registering more voters like us, towards raising some money or whatever for more campaign and awareness raising awareness with your neighbor and just being a good sportsman and right. and sharing the resource that you've gone out and procured yeah and people don't like to hear that and i get it we're all hunters we're kind of loners we just let us do our thing but the other sides are really good at this other game and we got to pick up our game when it comes to playing in that arena and I look at that, I've really done a lot of analysis of what happened here in Oregon last fall. You know, they have this, this initiative 114 where it really made it hard to buy firearms here. H-Bill 114 was going to yeah. make, I mean, it's crazy how restrictive. guns almost yeah. completely. And it only lost by a fraction. I mean, it almost got defeated, even though the cause that we would be on the side of got outspent 20 to 1. How, how could he, how could those guys mount such a great fight and only lose by a fraction? Well, they put up a good fight. They had a lot of motivated people, but here's where we fell short. And I don't live in Oregon, but when you look at it, rural America, which probably is more our audience, there's a higher proportion of hunters, anglers, trappers, and, you know, people. In of, Bend, of, Oregon, than there is in Portland, Oregon. Exactly percentage-wise. Well, what have some of the lowest voter turnout rates? Rural. So they only lost by some fraction of a percent here in Oregon. If all those rural people, all those hunters, gun owners, others who said, ah, heck with it, my vote doesn't matter. If they would have all showed up, they would have beat it. 
Look at the Colorado Wolf one. It did not win by very much. Again, if all of our people showed up and voted and got involved, we would beat those kind of things. So apathy, uh, frustration, the other side is counting on us getting frustrated and throwing our hands in the air. I, I ain't doing that. I, I'm just too bullheaded. I'm, you know, I'm in it for the fight. Not for the fight, but I'm in it for the long haul, and I'm going to fight. I so. grew up here in Oregon, you know, in the oh, mid-2000s, I went to the retirement party of a Forest Service employee here in, in Sisters. And he got up and kind of gave his commencement speech, and he basically said when he first started, every crew crummy pickup truck got handed a shotgun and a 22 and a six pack of beer in the morning to go out and do trail maintenance yeah. right if there was a grouse if there was a rabbit they right. shot it they all got their one beer when they got done doing fire trail or whatever yeah. and drove home and gone are those days of oh, the yeah. forest service packing weapons gone are the days of them having a beer after work and yeah. the mentality of that whole organization has switched from you know guys like you and me that like to be outdoors and go hey i can pick up a shovel and an axe and i can go maintain trails and get paid to be outside sure i'll sign me up to now it's kind of the other side runs that organization and i've seen it as much as you know the 60s and 70s our wilderness trail program expanded we were mm -hmm. putting trail we we're cutting tr new trails oh, oh let's put one over that pass let's go over there and now the main trailhead in the basin i love to hunt is full of beetle kill every spring and fall we get big nasty storms they come in june 15th clean up a few trees and leave right and now they're leaving that on the shoulders of the horsemen the horse right, association the the horsemen are the big, big trail maintainers in montana and uh, i'm getting sick and tired of every time i go in there having to cut a dozen trees to go get my elk and come out yep. and that's a public trail that everybody should be using and we we should be f the forest service is funded at the same levels it was 40 years ago what are right. they doing with the funding yeah well the, the in true dollars they are but Inflation wise, they're, they're not. They're, they're not. Um, in fact, I have a US Senator uh, coming on my podcast next week, and we're gonna talk about some of these things. Uh, our Senator posted a picture of him and his wife with a pronghorn and Twitter took it down. I don't know if you saw the big stink over that. They closed down his Twitter account, Senator Steve Daines. Uh, he and I have known each other a long time. So I'm like, you should come on the podcast again and let's talk about just hunting stories and stuff. But uh, he's really a, a, a big hiker guy. I mean, he, him and his family, they do a lot of hiking and sell uh, these kind of things about trail maintenance and budgets and, and, and directives of, hey, you're going to spend some of your budget on this. And so there's, there's a lot of changes that have happened over the last 20 30 years to how agencies are given their priorities by Congress, who ends up being the leadership. Uh, but we don't have to accept that. You know, we, we got to, we got to play that same game. We got to be oh, yeah. meeting with our elected people and say, Hey, this is our voice. This is what we'd like to see. We want some balance to this. So my company sells a bow packing system, right? Bow yeah. and arrow. We market exclusively on Facebook because it's working Yeah. the same week that I got shut down on Facebook for selling weapons because we have a Outdoor Edge branded knife, right? Okay. They call classify my website as now weapon selling and they shut us down. The same week, Facebook shut my marketing down, shut my whole, you know. Yeah. Uh, Zuckerberg is posting about how he's going to go spear a deer for some clean protein. <laughs> I mean, talk about hypocrites, right? Yeah. And, but yeah. we've given too much power as a, as a society to these social platforms to, to be the fact checkers, and this is mm -hmm. false information. Yeah. There's no such thing as false information. There's good information and bad information. Right. And let people sort it out. And I, the cure for bad information is more good, good information. In, yeah. Now, I, I, uh, in 2021, so two years ago, my Facebook page got taken over by some uh, folks in Southeast Asia. And... Uh, the, our other U.S. Senator, uh, Senator Tester, two of his staffers follow our stuff. And they call me. They're like, what's going on with your Facebook page? I'm like, I don't know, but Facebook won't get back to me. And you, you know, it's you probably experience the same thing, David. It's like uh, two weeks. Yeah, I you, got nothing. You, you may as well just stand out on the street corner here and yell. And we're yeah. talking four million views and 20,000 followers. You know, it's a, it's yeah. not a little platform and page. It's not something you can just, oh, go start a new one tomorrow and, and re-like your 150 friends. Yeah. And so, fortunately for me, 
that U.S. senator happens to sit on one of the, whatever it is, technology or telecommunications committees or something. And so three days later, I get a call from this lady who's in charge of a lot of stuff at Facebook. I'm like, whoa. Okay. (laughs) And she says, uh, Senator Tester's office told me I need to call you. It still took her two or three weeks to get me my page back. But what if I didn't know a U.S. senator or their staffers? I'd still be, I'd, I I'd be done. Yeah. So it's, to your point, it's, you know, I, this is why I, I realize that they're necessary parts of communicating, right? You know, at, at one time we communicated by radio and then came TV and then came the internet, da, da, da. When's the last time you hand wrote a letter and sent it to someone? Uh, actually, I do that more than probably good, most. Good for you. But, uh, I don't do that no, anymore. I, but my, my point of that is I accept it as these are the way our society communicates and hunters are part of the cross-section of society. So they're going to adopt these same communication platforms. But I think we as, as a community need to start flexing some of our muscle back to these groups and say, hey, you know, every little squeaky wheel that complains about a knife or complains about a bullet or a firearm, you boot them off, you know, advertising on YouTube or Facebook or Instagram. Well, you know, there's a bunch of these other things that we don't like. We're not asking you to get rid of them. Let them be whoever, and we'll pick and choose what we want to watch and what advertisers we want to see. And you've touched on on the difference is there's a mindset in this country of if I don't like something, it has to be destroyed. Yeah. And there's another mindset if I don't like or disagree with something. Move along. Not not for me, but okay. Go ahead. But that's the hunter-trapper-fisher mentality. Yeah. But we have to start realizing this is how the game gets played. And let's school ourselves up on this. And maybe it's inherent to our, or it's counter to our inherent approach to life, right? We don't want to be this squeaky wheel all the time. But But there's going to come times where we're going to have to do some of this stuff. One thing I think everybody can do very simply is control how your image is portrayed, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And that's, you know, not, yes, hunting is full of blood and guts and squeamish and butchering an animal. It's going to happen. And a little bit of that is okay. But... There's been more than once I've seen somebody post something that, you know, they could have taken a little more time to show some more respect and be a little more couth about introducing someone. And and anytime our platform and my social media people told, I said, take a step back. And yeah, I'm a big game hunter and I'm I'm used to to getting it up on my elbows and it just (laughs) it it happens. Right. Yeah. But take a look at that as somebody who's maybe on the fence of pro hunting anti hunting and how do they how does that reflect what we do and what who we are yeah we we don't need to shoot any more holes in the in the bottom of our boat <laughs> yeah, we have yeah. plenty yeah so switching gears a little bit yeah. patrick are you there yeah it's called the wind is blowing like 70 miles an hour here and our line of sight internet is not working great so you get what you get when you live in Wyoming or Montana, as you well know. Um, I live right, out in rural, rural Wyoming, so it's just kind of hit or miss sometimes. But I did have a question for you and didn't get a chance to ask it, but I want to ask it anyway. So my kids are big fans of the book Hatchet. And you probably are familiar with that book. Um, can you hear me okay? Uh, I I couldn't hear what book you said it was. The Hatchet. Oh, The Hatchet. I'm not familiar with that. Yeah. So my kids love that book. And you talked about growing up in Minnesota, which is similar, you know, terrain and country to, you know, the the story of Hatchet. I know that was more Canadian wilderness. But can you talk about how growing up there was different than, you know, where you're at in Montana and just kind of some of the fun things maybe you did as a kid in Minnesota? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Uh, Growing up there trapping was way more popular in minnesota than it is in montana and i was a trapper before i was a hunter uh and so i look at how many people give me the side eye when i tell them yeah i've been out beaver trapping or muskrat trapping or whatever and if i say that in northern minnesota people are like oh really how many did you get you know you know what are you what are you getting for a price on them da 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 uh so that was a little bit different um the in northern Minnesota, it's just about all public land. 
Whereas in Montana, we're two-thirds private land. So that was my first encounter with a lot of no trespassing signs was when I moved to Montana. Fortunately, we still have, you know, 30 million acres of public land. Uh, the other part of, of growing up there, I would say that where I did grow up, hunting was still, and even today, is very food-centric. And I'm not saying that it's not food-centric in Montana, but my buddies... They'll shoot a spiked deer and be just as happy as if they shot a four by four. And so they're just, I think like everything in life, there's, you know, cultures evolve about, you know, there's some history, there's some landscape to it. There's a whole lot of things that that come to that. Uh, Also fishing is probably a bigger part of the culture where I grew up in Northern Minnesota because there's lakes and and rivers and stuff everywhere. and we actually eat the fish in Minnesota. You know, if you catch a walleye, you don't let it go. Now, a trout, you let it go, right? I mean, who wants to eat the thing anyhow? But uh, some of them are good. But my wife has a saying, if you hook them, you cook them. And uh, so there were those little nuances <laughs> to, to those differences. But I'm, I'm still completely unapologetic about growing up as a trapper before I was ever a hunter. And I feel that trapping made me a way better hunter than if I did not have that experience of trapping. Because by the time I'm six years old, I could tell you a rabbit track from a squirrel track, from a fisher track, from a mink track, from a whatever. And And what each one of those species eats and when they're active and (laughs) what part of the terrain they're utilizing. Because a lot of people don't know, I grew up as a trapper and I, I, I didn't get into it till you know, late teens, Mm -hmm. and I had a great mentor. My father-in-law is a retired government trapper. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, he, uh, that's the reason we're in Wyoming is we followed him over there chasing grizzly bears and wolves. So (laughs) I've I've had a lot of fun doing that. But it's, it teaches you a respect just for the craft, the art, the wildlife, nature on such a deeper level than even hunting. Because hunting, you're somewhat of an observer, and then you harvest one. Right. To, to place traps and to be successful at it, you have to really know your stuff. Yeah. I mean, take, I've done lynx in Alaska and I've done bobcats and coyotes and foxes. I haven't had a chance. I've set wolf traps. I just haven't caught one myself. Yeah. But you have to intimately know that species, its habits and how to, you know, get, get in the right position to be successful. And there's a, there's a steep, steep, steep learning curve. Yeah. Probably one other thing that was different is I grew up in a very uh, traditional culture of Scandinavians who had moved there in 1900, 1910. And you didn't have a lot of people moving there from, you know, didn't have a lot of folks who moved there from, say, Ohio or from Florida or wherever. It was just, we we're all the same kind of square headed, you know, Finlanders and Swedes and Norwegians living in Bozeman we have a really new population you know we we have new people moving there all the time uh and you guys probably are experiencing any place where there's beautiful mountains you're getting a huge influx of people and with that comes different mindsets and i'm not saying my mindset is right i moved to montana you know in 1991 so i i raised my hand as i was part of it but i hope when i moved there i was trying to preserve what i moved there for and not change it. I, I, I took a 40% pay cut because I love what is here. Now, what I, in the, however many years you want to say, when you have cultures where, that have a lot of new arrivals, not saying any of them are, you know, whether I'm better than any of them, but it just creates different priorities and di- more social dynamics. There's a tension are, between the yeah. old guard and the new guard, and we're yeah. plowing over, you know, somebody's old field to put in 10 new houses like well i used to shoot ducks in that field (laughs) yeah that's exactly right where what buffalo wild wings is in bozeman my duck blind used to sit right in the parking lot of buffalo buffalo wild wings but i think the other part of that is like my neighbor to the south of me they got 120 acres of alfalfa and elk come down there in winter well one neighbor said you know i'm tired of fighting it and they built a subdivision not i mean right to his other boundary i'm on the other side and some of the new people are like, well, those irrigation pivots, they drive me nuts. Or when he's harvesting, you know, I got... It's getting dust everywhere in my house. I didn't move here for that. It's like, well, then why did you move here? When, when you moved here, did you not see that big alfalfa field right there? They put a 500 house subdivision across the road from my family's mink 
and dairy farm. Wow. And the realtors were saying, oh, they're going out of business. They're going to, because I'm sorry, but a, you, you had the mink to the dairy. It, it creates <laughs> the quite the smells. Yeah. Right? There was a guy south of Bozeman who he didn't want people moving in around him. And he, I don't know how many acres he had, probably like a quarter section, 160 acres or something. He put up a great big fan sign, billboard sign that said, future home of happy oinkers pig farm <laughs> <laughs> i love it right on I the corner it. of patterson and fowler yeah just just not in my backyard is yeah. my attitude sure yeah. we can have more expansion and more people and i'm yep. i'm glad that we're um you know doing a good job as an industry procuring new hunters and bringing people in the sport just not too many yeah. not in my state right right but i so to your point patrick that's probably one of the things that i'm still trying to get used to and I, I reflect on, well, dang, you know, when I moved to Bozeman, the economy was so depressed. Everyone was leaving Bozeman because the sawmills had shut down. The logging was going on the way out. All the mining over in Butte and Anaconda had shut down. It was a really depressed time. But I'm sure still some of those people who toughed it out there said, oh, here comes some, you know, tin horn from wherever. They probably felt the same way about me. And I, I, I take a lot of pride in thinking that I've done my best to try enhance and and protect all the things I've moved there for. And so some might say, oh, you haven't done a very good job of it, Newberg. <laughs> but I feel like I've tried. I was going to ask you too, there's a, a guest that I had on a couple of years ago, Larry Dahlberg. He's from Minnesota. I'm sure you're familiar with Larry. Um, you know, he talked about growing up there as a kid and being dropped off for days at a time to fish and hunt and trap and do whatever. Um, did you ever do those multi-day excursions when you were a kid and just go off into the woods and do your own thing? I did. You know, anyone, if you grew up in Minnesota, you were looking at Dahlberg divers for fishing. He was like one of the first crazy guys who fished pike on a fly. My dad would be like, that guy ain't right, man. <laughs> that you know? guy ain't right, man. Uh, I can even hear the accent in there. <laughs> yeah, you betcha, Dare. Eh? <laughs> that look, guy look, ain't look, right look. there. Yeah, that guy there. Don't, don't, don't be listening <laughs> to him there. Uh, but, you know, I, I was so spoiled. I thought everybody grew up on the banks of something like the Big Fork River where I could do multi-day canoe trips. And our, we 12 years old, our parents would be like, hey, can you go pick us up at the mouth of the Rainy River or at Ben Lynn's Landing, you know? And we're three nights, just, you know, four of us in two canoes and fishing muskies and smallmouth and walleyes and whatever. And it was like this Tom Sawyer type growing up Your lifestyle. Your parents had no idea where you were. They, yeah, if we were in the house, you know, it's like, you know, there's fish down in the river. Get your butt down there and go, you know. I, and make sure you bring one back for dinner or don't come back. Yeah, so Larry is a little bit of a hero back there. I mean, and prior to him, it was the Lindner brothers and then a guy named Wally Pease. Wally Pease used to have this Saturday evening show called The Sportsman's Notebook. And when I was like eight or nine years old, when we finally got a TV, I think I was like six or seven, and I'd heard about this Wally Pease guy. And I'd turn it on, and I would sit there... And I was just fascinated. And if someone would have told me later on in my life, I would be on that TV doing something. I'd have been like, you're crazy, man. This Wally Pease guy, I wanted his autograph before I wanted an autograph of uh, a quarterback of the Minnesota Vikings or, uh, you know, whatever. You were on the edge of your seat listening to every word oh, he said on yeah. that show and couldn't wait to go down the river and try the ne newest technique or the new knot that he just gave yeah. you on the show. And he was based out of Duluth, and so he'd give fishing reports for certain areas. And when the fishing report kind of got up, we were north of Duluth, kind of got up to our place, and he'd say, you know, they caught whatever at Spider Lake. I was incessantly hounding my dad or my grandpa. We got to go to Spider Lake. Wally P said that they caught whatever in Spider Lake. It's like, I, I'm sure my, all my family is like, boy, I wish that he wouldn't watch that Fortsman's Notebook at night. And so I, I, I was really lucky to grow up there. And, you know, if you grow up in a little town, a lot of times you say, I can't wait to get out of this little one-horse town. And now I look at it. The best thing that ever happened to me was growing up in Big Falls, Minnesota, a little town. At the time, it was 500 people. Now it's 200 people now that the mail closed and everything. And I just, I, I'm blessed. I, I can't, I don't know how else to explain it. That growing up like that was a big blessing and has shaped my view of the world. 
the flyover states have all of it and the, the fly to states have none of it. <laughs> there you go. Just keep flying over. <sighs> so if you had to pick one fish to catch, cook, eat, what is it? What are you go what are you going fishing for and how are you cooking it? No, I'm going walleye fishing. Not not even a question. I mean part of that, yeah, I grew up doing that and you know, whether it was through the ice or whatever, I was walleye fishing nonstop. So I live in Bozeman, Montana, and we got the Yellowstone, we have the Gallatin, the Madison, the Jefferson, the Beaverhead, the Big Hole, all within a close drive, the Missouri. What do my wife and I do? We load up her walleye fishing boat and we head to Fort Peck and fish walleye six hours away. Uh, I, 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 you know, some, some DNA problem along the way, I, it's not correctable. <laughs> not I don't correctable. know what to tell you. Well, Patrick is a huge walleye fisherman as well. So oh, cool. you share that well, with Patrick, him. we're going to have to talk about that stuff because I've, I've fished Boysen down there in Wyoming before. Uh, and it was a, during the really bad drought uh, period. And so it was tougher fishing. But every time I drive by there, I'm like, man, I should have brought my boat with. Well, it's not my boat. It's my wife's boat. She's on boat number five right now. Well, they think the current state record is swimming around in that reservoir. Oh, that wouldn't surprise me. I mean, that's a prolific reservoir. Um, but I need to get to Pathfinder and Glendo and Seminole and all those also. Uh, well, Patrick has done a couple uh, couple how-to episodes on each one of those reservoirs. Really? So. Dang, I need to get, to, I need to block out some time to watch more, more video cast, stuff. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I... Guys come over to our house, and I have a shop uh, that we store all of our outdoor gear in, and they walk in, and they see my wife's boat. They're like, oh, man, great boat, Randy. That's not mine. Uh, it's yeah. the wife's. <laughs> exactly. That's Kim's boat. <laughs> so. so if you had to pick one big game species, and not even big game species, if you had to pick one mammal species to hunt and one weapon, where yeah. are we going? What are we hunting? I'm going to Rollins, Wyoming, pronghorn hunting with my whatever you let me be out there with uh might be my 6.5 prc it might be my 30 30 i don't care whatever you let me hunt with and i always tell my wife and people are going to think i'm crazy but i tell her if you ever get rid of me and some mail shows up that you got to forward to you know forward it to me just send it to rollins wyoming <laughs> that's where i'll be I, well, you, you, I, Everyone says, well, the wind blows so hard in Rollins. I'm like, well, just go down the road to Elk Mountain. That's where the wind really blows. You know, Rollins <laughs> you it doesn't have here. anything on Elk Mountain. But uh, I, I love Wyoming. Uh, there, there's a lot of places that have hunting culture that reminds me of what, what I grew up with and what really gets me going. Wyoming has it. Western Colorado has it. Uh, Montana has it. Uh, Western New Mexico has it. Eastern, Northern East, Idaho. Yeah. Eastern and Northern Arizona has a lot of that. Uh, you get outside of the Vegas area in Nevada. Nevada has a ton of it. So I find myself immersing in some of these cultures that are, they're all distinct, but I go to, you know, Ely, Nevada, and it's like, man, this is my kind of folk you here. Can, you can find your kind of folks anywhere you go if you look for them. Yeah, they I think are you're there. right, David. Yeah, I, I got a hundred more questions, but in in, in uh, conscientious of time, you got any more <laughs> Patrick's questions there, Patrick? I was just gonna say, if you're gonna come down, we should go That's fishing at Boyson because it's like thirty minutes from the house. So, oh man. He's there. He's uh, there after work more often than, than really? he probably should admit. You know, I've stayed in Riverton before. Uh, is there any truth to that crappie fishing out at Ocean Lake? There's some really good crappie in Ocean and in Boyson. All right. Well, uh, my boat has, has been parked at the Best Western in Riverton, Wyoming quite a few times. Uh, well, we got a place for you to stay when you come. <laughs> so you just you just give us a day head note and we'll we'll get you hooked up. We'll have to do a, a collab film and fishing. We'll get Patrick to, to be the tour guide and show us the hot spots. You just let me know. But are you gonna let me eat them, Patrick? That's the real question because the other part of that question is how would I cook them? And I have my own fish mix that I do. And I've yet to have anybody, this is like a 30 year in the making of, of this fish mix. And most people who eat it are like, you need to be in the fish mix business, man. 
Well, so. we're gonna, we're going to have a competition. We're going to put your fish mix up against Patrick's High Mountain Seasoning fish mix. Okay. And we'll we'll do half the batch your way, half the patch uh, his way, and uh, we'll have a, a little tasting test and we'll declare a winner. Okay, that that'll work. And, that sounds and, like fun. Patrick, I'll even bring out some hand harvested wild rice. I, I'm, I'm like a conduit to hand-harvested wild rice of northern Minnesota because that wild rice you go buy down at the grocery store. It's that's not a, very good. No, it's it, not good. It, it is rotten. And so I'll tell the guy, I'm like, this isn't patty, this, this is patty rice, this isn't lake rice. And they'll argue with me. He's like, well, how would you know? You want to know how much wild rice I've eaten in my life and how much of my family has harvested? And just trust me on that. So if I come down and we have a walleye, walleye cooking outfit, We'll bring some wild rice and a few other things. So Ed grew up, and I've said it a hundred times on the podcast, but he we grew up here in the Pacific Northwest, steelhead fishing, and he would pull me out of school half day Thursday. We had no school Friday, and we would steelhead fish Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Cool. Sometimes we went to church Sunday and went fishing afterwards. <laughs> I did get to where I'm a pretty prolific steelhead fisherman and then got to go to Alaska and do some salmon. And t- to this day, when Dad comes elk hunting with me, you, you and I take a nap at noon because we got up right. at 4 a.m., right? right? I'll wake up from my nap, and my dad has cut a willow, has pulled a leader and a fly out of his pack, and <laughs> is over there fishing. catching fingerling brookings that are, you know, three inches long, and he's just smiling because he comes to go elk hunting, and I already know. He comes to go with me. He doesn't come to kill elk. Yeah. He, he would, he'd rather go fish for three-inch brook trout all day. Yeah. Well, our thing says that we lost Patrick again there. The wind must really be chucking there in Wyoming today. Well, we've got it recorded, and Patrick, you're here in 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 spirit too. But yeah, I, I could I could almost hear it a few times. So if yeah. the, if the wind's chucking, that's good. We have like four feet of snow drifted around my house. Really? So maybe it's a it'll, warm wind and it'll blow some of that blow, melt that snow off. I think it blows through Montana up to Canada. I don't know where the where the because it never melts in Wyoming. It just blows around <laughs> enough that it wears out and it goes away. You can scrape the snow off and there's dry dirt underneath. I don't know where our snow goes, but... Maybe it does come to Montana. I don't know. Have you guys had a brutal winter like we have? Oh, it's... uh, You know, this is my eighth winter there after moving down from Alaska. And this... You know, usually we have negative temperatures for two weeks. And I usually have six inches of snow. Two days later, the wind comes, it's gone. The snow came late November and it has stayed... It's still there, and we had some minus 50 days. Yeah. I mean, I came up, I had a Montana elk tag. I came up there the last week of season trying to fill my tag, and it was 25 below then. I was worried my truck was going to start at elk camp. (laughs) I got a diesel truck. I'm like, am I going to be able to get out of here? Yeah, I I worry about what things are going to look like. If we get another cold blast here in March... I don't know. Our deer herd's gonna, a deer, deer definitely gonna suffer. The elk are yeah. gonna start to suffer. So, yeah, so. we we need the moisture, but we, we've got enough moisture now. Yeah, but if it wanted to just warm up from here on out, you get my vote. So, Randy, if uh, if people wanted to get in contact, find out more, where would where? How do they get a hold of you? Where? Yeah, it's pretty easy. You can go to our YouTube channel, Fresh Tracks. Uh, we have a big forum called HuntTalk.com. There we have links to everything. Or if you listen to podcasts, uh, I have the Hunt Talk Radio podcast, and then Corey Jacobson and I do the Elk Talk podcast together. And I do, as much as I don't know how to do social media, I have some really good crew members that know how to do that. So you can find us on Instagram or Facebook, and that's Fresh Tracks with Randy Newberg. And uh, that's where you come to a show like this in Bend, Oregon, and it, see me it, here. Hammer you down. Well, continue to pass it on. I, I know a lot of people are sitting on the edge of their couches Saturday. A lot of young, you know, 10-year-old kids that want to be elk hunters someday are... are you know, yeah. eating up every word and consuming every minute of footage. So you, you're a great ambassador. I really appreciate you coming on. It's been great to get to, to chat. So, well, thank you, David and Patrick, both of you guys. Thanks for your persistence. And I, I hope next time it's not so hard to corner me. Yeah, uh, uh, it, it won't we can, be. We, we can do it again. We got to go do that walleye fishing trip. And okay. So All right. I don't know what the schedule's lined up. Mine's pretty busy till August, but there's yeah. a weekend here, there, and and Patrick would love to, to host that. I'm I'm extending your uh, services, Patrick. Yeah, Patrick. They told me I can't lift anything more than five pounds with this until mid June. So hopefully we're just catching pound and a halfers or something. 
Hopefully he can see that. I'm I'm showing Patrick my my arm that's in a cast. Go ahead, Patrick. I was just saying those are the best eating ones anyway, and we'll 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 find fish. There's no doubt about it. Okay. <laughs> well, we're gonna do the outro here, everybody. This has been Radcast Outdoors with Randy Newberg. Go check out his stuff. Subscribe. You know, there's a reason why he's partnered and sponsored with these companies. They're great companies. So definitely, when you're thinking about some new gear, I don't care if it's seasoning, hunting gear, optics, whatever it is. You know, there's there's a reason why. Randy's partnered with these companies and it's because they put their money where their mouth is and they really do support our industry. So thank you, David. Thank you, Patrick. Appreciate it very much. Thanks again for listening to the Radcast Outdoors podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed the show. If so, please go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast and subscribe, share, and give us a five-star rating, which really helps other people find the show. You can find all of our shows, recipes, giveaways, videos, and much more at radcastoutdoors.com. While you're there, please help support the show by purchasing a Radcast Outdoors shirt or hat. Please don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We also have a Radcast community on Facebook called Radcast Nation, and we'd love for you to join in the conversation there. And of course, please help support our sponsors who make this show possible. Thank you again to PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Until next time, get out there and enjoy the outdoors.